please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Eu quero ser um testemunho. Remove o erro e crie o bem em mim. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Estrela alva brilha em mim. Brilha a luz que nunca vi. Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. 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 Good morning from Rick Bonfin Ministries. Hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend and got some rest and some fun with your family. Um, we are back here in our new studio, our new set that Jason Goins came from Virginia and built for us. Um, John told me I've got the cross on one side and the gun on the other, so it's good stuff to have, right? <laughs> we are in John chapter 19. The last time we looked at this... Um, Reverend Dr. Frank talked about Jesus receiving the sour wine and then bowing his head and giving up his spirit, his last moment on the cross. So I'm going to pick up there in John 19, verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. I started to just zoom right through this, and then I remembered what Rick told us last week. Stop and look. And the first thing I saw there was the Jews. <laughs> the Jews. Who are the Jews? That's a good question. I would have, like I said, I would have just zoomed right past that into the events. But Rick was pointed out to us, let's slow down. Let's look at the verse. Who's it really talking who are the Jews? Well, I can tell you some people that they're not. This, um, this is not the widow of Nain, who Jesus um, restored her son to her. Um, the Jews do not include Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, Jesus' good friends that lived in Bethany. The Jews here of verse 31 do not include blind Bartimaeus, who was healed on the the road to Jericho, or Jairus, or Jairus, the, uh, oh, sorry, was I looking at the wrong camera? I'm looking at that one, this one. <laughs> okay, my producer is correcting me here. <clears throat> the Jews do not d include Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, whose little girl was raised from the dead in Capernaum. This is not talking about the lepers, the blind, the paralyzed that Jesus went about from place to place and healed and restored to life. Actually, this, this phrase, the Jews, is used over 70 times in, in John's Gospel. So it's a pretty important term for us to understand. But only one time is it used, Cindy, get ready to read um, John 4.22. One time it is used in a very favorable way. 
It's in John 4:22. Would you read that, Cindy? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, meaning God chose the Jews as a, a race he created out of, out of Abraham to be the race through whom he would send his Redeemer, the Messiah, the one who would redeem all mankind, right? Salvation is from the Jews, the race that came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Another time in John, it is used in sort of a neutral way, not so much favorable, just neutral. That is John 2.6, and Cindy's got that because I gave her all the John passages. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Okay, so that just talks about them as a culture, not just a people through whom the Messiah would come, but an ethnic group, a kind used by the Jews. So... I said it's used 70 times. The term the Jews is used 70 times. Once favorable, once neutral. What does that leave? 68 times. (laughs) Where it speaks of the Jewish leaders who are hostile to Jesus. That is what is normally meant whenever you see that phrase in the Gospel of John. The Jews. It's a very specific um, reference to those Jewish leaders who are out to get Jesus. An example of that would be John 8:48 through 52. Cindy, if you would, please. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. <laughs> Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. So the Jews said, Here we know you are demon-possessed. These are the people we're talking about. Um, the Jews were the people that had these very hostile ideas towards Jesus. And here in John 19:31. The Jews that are spoken of are a delegation that's been sent by the Sanhedrin to put a stop to the activities of a teacher who was becoming more popular than they were. And they wanted him taken out of the way, right? So we've spent this time now, five minutes, talking about the Jews. Is there any relevance to us? Yes, because what they represent here, what they are, what they're motivated by is the religious spirit. Correct? The institution of religion. And I, I don't know who first said this, but I learned it many, many years ago. Religion will always persecute the kingdom. The institution of religion will always persecute the kingdom as well as the king, Jesus. See, all Jews did not crucify Jesus. That's why I listed some of the others. The widow of Nain, Jairus, blind Bartimaeus, Mary Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, all Jews did not crave the crucifixion of Jesus or think he was demon-possessed. Many, in fact, received him as Messiah and as the Son of God. The first church in Jerusalem was totally Jewish until God began to send out Peter and Paul to the Gentiles. So, um, So all Jews did not crucify Jesus, but the Jews as we understand here, the religious system. 
And Jesus, his truth, his authority, his holiness, his glory, his, his demand to be recognized as the only way and truth and life will always threaten the system. It will threaten the position, the wealth, the influence, the um, power and entitlement of the system. So there's a lesson to us in here. Be careful who you serve because the system is something of the world. It is not of the kingdom. Be careful. Just because you are a church member does not mean you're serving the kingdom. You can be serving the world and be actually a part of the system of what we see here, the Jews. The Jews wanted this done with. Okay, They came to Pilate and they said, let's get this over with. You know, they wanted to go home. <laughs> they wanted to have their weekend. So they asked Pilate. They said that the bodies, meaning Jesus and the criminals that were hanging on either side of him, should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. <clears throat> For that Sabbath was a high day, meaning that Passover, Jesus had died on Passover. He was the fulfillment of Passover. That was Thursday. And any Passover or Feast of the Lord would be considered a special Sabbath. Then it says, For that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The next day, Friday, would be the day of preparation. That's preparation for the normal Saturday Sabbath. And then, of course, the Sabbath would be Saturday. All of this is prefigured in the Passover. You know, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the feast of the Passover. And they asked Pilate, Could, let's, get him, let's get these bodies down so that we can have our day of preparation and then go on to our Sabbath and not have to be here making sure he's dead and taken care of. And they asked that their legs might be broken. If you were with us last week, I shared with you a little bit about this and I'm not going to belabor it, but I did remind you that crucifixion was the cruelest way to die. It was the most painful and agonizing and shameful way to die. And, but it didn't come necessarily by someone losing all their blood. Jesus lost all of his blood because they beat him, because they scourged him so much, because in the garden he sweat great drops of blood as he agonized for you and for me. It wasn't necessarily death by bleeding. It was death by suffocation. And so on these crosses, when the man would have his cross timber dropped into the, the upright one, then at the bottom of the upright one, uh, around where the knees were, would be another crossbar where the man could put his feet and he could push himself up because he could not breathe as he hung there suspended. And so um, men could hang there. They could exist by pushing themselves up, taking a breath, and falling back down for four, five, six days. It could take that long to suffocate to death on a Roman cross. That's why it was so cruel. It gave people time to go by and mock them and spit on them and just watch them as they died this long, drawn-out, agonizing death. But in this case, the Jews wanted to get it over with because they wanted to go home and have their Sabbath. So they asked that their legs might be broken. Why broken? So that they could not push themselves up, grasp yet another breath. It's, it's just so interesting how we are so 
by our Creator, we have this life. Um, what, what am I trying to say here, John? We have this drive for life, instinct for life, that in so much pain we still will try to take one more breath, right? Um, <clears throat> so in verse 32, it says, The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who, had, who was crucified with him. Now remember, there were two thieves, one on each side. One had scorned him, said, if you're the king, why don't you save yourself and save us? But the other one we read about in Luke 23. Let's just take a second and revisit that. Um, Luke 23:42. Hang on, I'm almost there. The other man, he was saying, Jesus... <laughs> and like I told you, he wasn't just having a conversation. He would have to push himself up with every breath. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And then Jesus doing the same thing, having to push himself up on his, cro- on, on his crossbar, would push himself up with a breath. And, sa- and he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So we saw there that the first member of the kingdom of God was a criminal. And his salvation happened at the last moment from his Roman cross. Verse 33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The scripture tells us there was a thief on each side of Jesus. That doesn't mean there weren't many more criminals. So they may have gone down the line, breaking the legs of each man to make sure that he couldn't push himself up anymore, he couldn't breathe anymore, he would suffocate. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. He had not hung there four, five, six days. He had hung there six hours. And this is very unusual for them to come and find a man who'd only been there a matter of hours, and they didn't need to break his legs. They didn't need to hasten his death on the cross. This in itself should have spoken volumes to them. (laughs) Why is this man so different that he died in six hours? Um, We talked about this again also last week, um, that... The reason why Jesus died so quickly, though it seemed like eternity to him, the reason he died so quickly is because of what the scripture says, is that he bore all of our sins, all of our iniquities, all of our transgressions, all of our diseases. In fact, he bore the entire curse that had come upon the entire world in his body on the cross. He bore an estimated sin and weight of 120 billion people in his body at one time. Um, Anyone watching should have noted that Jesus did not die of crucifixion. He died of something much greater. And that is confirmed in verse 34 because it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. And I've read various things about this, but quite a lot of commentators Um, studious people say that the way the blood separated from the water 
was the result of a ruptured or a broken heart. Who's got Isaiah 53, 5 and 6? It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which we know by heart. We know this. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Of us all. All means all. All people born from Adam to the last child that will ever be born. All iniquity of something like 120 billion people was laid on him. And his heart was literally ruptured. The pain, the agony (coughs) of bearing our transgressions and our sins literally ruptured his heart. And so this was a confirmation in verse 34 that this death was not a normal crucifixion. That blood and water separated came out from a broken, ruptured heart. In verse 35, John says, now pay attention, this is where I really want to go today. As opposed to, I'm in contrasting this to the Jews that we started with in verse 31. Verse 35, John, the writer of this gospel, um, known to be Jesus' closest friend, and he who has seen, he's speaking of himself here, has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John, speaking of himself, John was there. John witnessed all of this. The other disciples scattered and hid, but John was there at the cross, wasn't he? He watched all this, and he wrote it down for us. See, it's important that he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. For example, the Muslims teach that the disciples of Jesus came, and they took him down from the cross, and they substituted another man. That they believe that Jesus was a prophet, but that he didn't die an atoning death on the cross. So it is important, isn't it, that John was there, (coughs) that he bore witness, that he wrote it down, and he said, my witness is true. Because we have to decide who we are going to believe. And John testifies here. He who has seen has borne witness. This just ties in with our theme for the year, Revelation 19.10. You know that, John, by heart? The second part of it, anyway. Uh, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, so that's what John is doing here. He is prophesying. He is testifying. He says his witness is true. Why? So that you also might believe throughout the ages. We were not there. We did not see it. But the soldiers bore witness to it. They saw it. And John, the apostle, saw it, wrote it down that we also might believe. I was reading this this weekend, and that would not have been a verse that would have jumped out at me in the past. (laughs) But it did. You know, this is the rhema thing when the Holy Spirit just highlights something and it jumps out and you go, when did you put that there? The Lord, you know, it's always been there, but I never saw it. Because I confess, I, as a good Methodist girl, raised in First United Methodist Church, Billings, Montana, 
I've, I've taken the Bible for granted. I've believed it since I was a little girl, since I was three or four years old, and my mom would read me Bible stories. Um, I had my own little children's Bible. I, I never questioned, of course the Bible's true. But today, that is not, I, I don't think we can take that for granted, <coughs> that the Bible is absolutely in our hearts and minds that we know that we know that it's true and we just never even question it. Um, So my question to you today is, do you believe? John wrote this down. He said that, that his witness is true and he is telling the truth so that you may believe. Do you believe? I remember also... This is the Methodist hymnal from First Church Billings. This, this predated when we became the United Methodist Church. And not every Sunday, but very often, we would read the Apostles' Creed. Remember that, folks? Yeah. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, which means universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This was truth. To me as a child, this was just truth. I believe it. (laughs) I don't question a word of it. But it's no longer that way. It's no longer that way. There are pastors, there are pastors' wives, there are seminary professors, there are theologians denying that Jesus is God's only Son, our Lord, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he died an atoning death, that he took our sin that he was raised from the dead. I know of a, 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 a bishop, a United Methodist bishop, who is saying that Jesus did not raise from the dead. Um, our Lord and King, the only way to the Father, eternal life, that he's coming again. See, we don't need the world to bring doubt and unbelief and heresy because it's in the church. It's in the pulpits. It's in blogs. <laughs> We just can't take for granted anymore. Well, we're Christians, so we believe this, right? But God bless his holy name. He will always have a witness. If (laughs) we do not have to search everywhere and wonder what is true and wonder how to figure out what is true, we do have to choose. We do have to decide to believe God's witness or reject it. But God will always have a witness. And he sent John to witness everything that happened with Jesus on the cross and then to write it down and then to declare, my witness is true, that you may believe. So those of you who think you're in such great confusion about what to believe, you really don't have to be in confusion. You just have to make up your mind. Are you going to believe God's inspired word or not? in the midst of a society that says it's okay to question everything and and doubt it and challenge it. And it's even sometimes kind of trendy Mm -hmm. to not believe it, right? To have our own ideas. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
I'm going to finish this and we're going to read a couple of scriptures and I think we will end pretty close to on time. Um, Verse 36. For these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Verse 37. And again another scripture says they shall look upon him whom they pierced. So John is bearing witness that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the scripture, even to such minute things as not a bone will be broken. He has fulfilled prophecy. And it's, it's extraordinary that of all the criminals, all the people lined up on crosses there, and particularly of the three, the two, one on either side, and, of, and Jesus, only his legs were not broken. And the spear was thrust into his side, and yet a bone was not broken. So that is extraordinary. That is a very specific fulfillment of Scripture that shows us that John's witness is true, that Jesus is the fulfillment. So let's read some of those Scriptures quickly that he did fulfill. Exodus 12:46. John... In one house shall it be eaten. You shall not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall you break a bone thereof. Okay, so it's talking, that's God's explicit directions to Moses of how to handle the Passover lamb. They are to take the lamb, they are to watch it for three days, and they are to roast it. But one of the, one of the instructions there, John, was they are not to break a bone, Right? Why? Because that Passover lamb was a total foreshadowing of our Passover lamb, Jesus. Then Numbers 9.12. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it. According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. Okay, so that reiterates again that the Passover lamb is not to have a bone broken. So do you see how God is fulfilling his word in Jesus? John is observing it. So are the soldiers. (laughs) And John is saying, now, I am bearing witness, and my witness is true, so that you may believe this is God's Passover lamb. What about Psalm 22, Cindy, 16 and 17? Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. All right, so was Jesus fulfilling that prophecy? Absolutely. And then Psalm 34:20. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. Amen. So that's why John included that in his testimony. He said these things came to pass that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. We don't have to be confused about whether Jesus is the perfect fulfillment, whether scripture confirms itself, whether it all comes together into one total truth. We can be if we want to be, but we don't have to be. I I submit to you, you can be like me when I was a little girl and I just believed the Bible and I believed the the Apostles' Creed. It was there, it was real, it was true. Why should I question it? I submit to you that we can come like little children and just simply accept this testimony. And we don't have to get all in our heads or trying to please the modern culture by questioning everything. And it's a much greater place of peace.
say something real Please, quick? Please, John. When I was in seminary, <clears throat> one thing I did learn that was really good is there's a movement in in the intellectual field of theology against this idea that you have to have empirical evidence to prove things because mm -hmm. that's the criticism by, you know, the world is there's no, you know, it's all just what people say. It's all just some testimony. Yeah. And there's a big movement to affirm that actually an eyewitness testimony is more powerful than empirical evidence. And it's it's really an interesting line of thought when you start to read how these guys present their argument. Yeah, empirical, empirical thoughts. Yeah, help us how understand do I define that. Find empirical evidence, <laughs> objective er evidence, something that that would not be subjected to the person's opinion or experience, but is is some type like of archaeology. Archaeology. Yeah, yeah, something you could see, scientific stuff, right? But a test, but an eyewitness testimony yeah. is more. And there, there's a lot of people that are, they are writing books and developing a a whole line of thinking to say, to argue that actually human testimony is even more powerful. Amen. Than all. it's it's really cool stuff. And I'm out of it, you know, ten years ago. Yeah. But I remember that, and it it hit me. It struck me. It it, it stayed with me. So the spirit, the the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony yeah. is the most powerful thing. So in closing here, um, <clears throat> verse 37 is John quoting Zechariah 12. They shall look on him who they pierce. Now let's go back to the Jews that we talked about. The Jews and their agenda for Jesus. Now when, when it's said they shall look on him, who, who is the prophet talking about? And who is John quoting? Is he talking about this group of Jewish leaders who are out to get Jesus. Let's read the scripture and, and see who this is. It's Zechariah 12, verse 10. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is not speaking of the Jews that we mentioned 68 times that say that Jesus is possessed by a devil. Rather, the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is, this is where Paul wrote of the Jewish people as a whole have been blinded. He wrote about that in Romans 11. <clears throat> and their leaders did all they could to turn them from their Messiah. Amen? And there's much of that in the religious system today. As I said, the religious system will always persecute the kingdom and the king. But um, Paul says there's going to come a day when those Jewish blind eyes will be opened. And that's a whole long message in itself. But just Romans 11:25. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Blindness is one thing. 
God will remove blindness. It is the promise of Jesus when he stood in the synagogue in Nazareth um, <clears throat> and he quoted from the scroll of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. <clears throat> Blindness is one thing. God can remove blindness. If we know someone, if someone in your family, your brother, your sister, your mother, or your father are blind to the gospel, pray for them. Pray for your loved ones who are blind because God removes blindness. That's, that's the, Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do that very thing, to open the recovery of sight to the blind. <clears throat> so blindness is one thing. But beware the Jews who are not only blind themselves, but dedicate their lives to making others blind and turn little ones away from Jesus the Messiah. There's a vast difference between those who are blind, whose eyes can be opened, and those who seek to impose blindness on others. Amen? I don't know what you got out of this today. I just saw things I have never seen before and just thank God for his awesome word that never stops giving to us new new confirmation. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the way, the truth, and the life for us. In Jesus' name, amen. See you tomorrow. Rosa de Sharon